The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, episode number 601, for Sunday, April 17th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome. Mac Observers, Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions. We answer your questions. We also share your tips. And yes, today we'll share a little bit of cool stuff found because that's fun. The goal, of course, being each of us learn at least three new things every time we get together and have fun doing it. Sponsors for this episode include ProXPN. We're at ProXPN.com slash MacGeekGab. You can get a free VPN and more. We'll talk about that later. Also, Otherworld Computing at MacSales.com. Some of the best upgrades you'll ever find. We'll talk more about that later, too, here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How are you doing today, John F. Braun? Toasty. Are you toasty today? I'm, it's I'm not up there. Yeah, it's supposed to be in the 60s here today. It's, it's, it's there now, so... Uh... Is it? We're, we're I don't there. know. I'm not. I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm busy recording. I don't know what. It's, well, what it's I like glanced inside. at my outdoor, my my the outdoor portion of my weather station mm. while I was out and about. Yeah, oh, yeah. We're at 59 here, according to my weather station. So we'll get there by the end of the show. It feels like it's 59 in the studio, though. My stupid Nest thermostat, man. They updated the firmware, and uh, they re-enabled auto away mode or turned it on and I'd previously had it off. So like if it doesn't detect that you're in the environment where the thing is, it wouldn't even turn on for my schedule at, at 10 a.m. this morning. It's like, well, what, what good is this? Why do I set a schedule? I feel you like I'm able the, to override this. this sort well, of I, I can. And I had nonsense. in the past, I had turned it off, but it's like, even if you have this auto away thing, don't you think that maybe the concept of setting a schedule means I know something you don't, I'm going to be home. So make sure you heat that thing up. And then maybe if it gets to 1030 and it's not detecting that I'm in the room or whatever, then, okay, you know what? Let's back off. Let's not have it run until, you know, whatever, 12 or one. But, uh, but it, I mean, it should follow the schedule. That's crazy talk anyway. Ah, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. It's not so good. I don't know. It's uh, the the nest is a weird thing for uh, for colder climates. I think it doesn't. Uh, it, I have not. I have found other thermostats that work better. The EcoBee is is far and away the the better th- the, um, of the smart thermostats for climates that are well, not temperate. Well, Nest aren't they in California? Exactly. No, it's it, yeah, yeah. No, it it. Yeah, I've so always they said they don't know. They don't know what we have to go through here. No, but, but I mean, it's like perfect for that climate. It, it really is. And, and the Ecobee, it'll come as no surprise. They are um, in uh, it, based on uh, Toronto, right? So it, you know, yeah, they get it. They get it. Well, yeah, but it's, it's just two different paradigms. You know, here's the thing about the nest. The nest is built with the assumption that people don't know how to program their regular non quote unquote smart programmable thermostats. And you'll, and if you don't know how to program your thermostat, you can actually save some money if this thing, you know, is intelligent about it. But here's the thing. No one in my neck of the woods here uh, could afford to 
not learn how to program their thermostat. Everybody understands how their house works. I mean, you just, you have to figure this out. Otherwise it'll cost you thousands every year. And, uh, and so everybody kind of already knows, you know, how to do it. And yes, there's some cool things the nest could do. Like if you have it say, you know, be on all day on Saturday and it turns out that Saturday you happen to be, you know, out skiing or something. Well then great, you know, let it, let it drop down. And that, and that kind of stuff is cool. And also knowing how long it takes to, for your house to heat up from it, one temperature to another based on outside conditions, all of that stuff. Very cool. But, um, but, but this assumption, the, the ego B folks did not build their product with the assumption that their customers are, are unable to do this on their own or un, un um, I don't want to say uninformed, but that haven't learned how to do this on their own. They always have. So they take your learning and actually apply it. Whereas the nest people are like, now, nah, whatever these schedules are that you've set, man, uh, trust us. We know better. It's like, actually, no, you, you don't, but that's cool. You know, it's all good. Anyway, that was a rant I didn't expect to have, yeah. but I'm a little cold. So, you know, that's what you get. Hey, um, before we get too deep into things today, I wanted to mention very quickly that the Podcast Awards 2016 nominations are open and they are open until April 30th. But uh, we would very much appreciate uh, your nomination for this show in the technology category. Then once the nominations are in and I don't know what the thresholds are or anything, but once they're in and they kind of settle all that out, then hopefully we'll make it on the ballot and then we'll ask you again to vote. But check it out, podcastawards.com. We'd love to uh, get some recognition there. So that would be good. Did you sign up and uh, nominate us, John? Not yet. Okay. Well, it, it's very, very easy. They make it, they make it super simple. It's just uh, podcastawards.com. So. Wait, I can nominate myself? You can. Yeah. Uh, you can nominate other podcasts too. There's all kinds of categories and everything. Um, let your favorite podcasters know if you're nominating them though. And the reason is that this year podcasts uh, and you can nominate anyone, but they will only accept nominations for podcasts that have registered. It's a nominal fee of 10 bucks, um, which, uh, which we've already done here for the show, obviously. But um, if you, if you're, if you nominate your favorite podcaster, it doesn't matter if they get a thousand nominations, if they haven't paid that 10 bucks to be a part of the process, then they are not a part of the process, but you can nominate them and then they can go uh, and, and pay their 10 bucks. As long as they paid their 10 bucks before April 30th, all nominations up through, you know, through the whole period count. So there you go. That's all I got on that one, John. All right. All right. Uh, Shall we move into uh, to cool stuff found here now that now that we're done with our our ranting and uh, and all of that stuff? Is that good? Sure. Okay. Dive right in. <laughs> all right. Scott uh, writes. He actually has a sort of sort of two things. It's a cool stuff found and a quick tip. Uh, he says I recently purchased the Belkin. I don't even know how to pronounce this. Q O D E combination case and keyboard for my iPad Air 2. It's an absolutely terrific device that is as small as the Zuglu case I was using previously and just about the same price. He said, I just didn't like their, uh, it, they, they, they don't have a keyboard, the Zuglu, the Zuglu person, uh, case. He says, uh, there are keys mapped to specific functions for iOS, including one that mirrors the double press on the home button to bring up horizontal scrolling list of apps to flip through. I thought that was pretty cool until I stumbled upon what I think is even cooler by force of habit i hit command tab on my ios or on my ipad's keyboard 
And much to my surprise, a row of icons popped up just in the same way that they do on Mac OS uh, or on OS 10. We're not calling it Mac OS yet, Scott. That's soon. Uh, continuing to press command tab, cycled through them and shift command tab had the expected action of going backwards. I've always thought that the app switching feature on iOS was cumber cumbersome, but this is terrific. I'm a keyboard fanatic from way back. Uh, and this feature adds one of my most used shortcuts to an iOS device. And, and then he wrote and he said, it gets even better on this keyboard. Holding down the command key brings up a context sensitive menu of commands with keyboard shortcuts In mail. For example, you can use command R and command shift R to reply or reply all uh, in Safari. You can use command T for a new tab or command W to close one. With this keyboard and these shortcuts, I'm convinced more and more that I'll never go back to a laptop. So very cool, Scott. Thank you for, for sharing that. And uh, we'll put a link to that Belkin keyboard, of course, in the, uh, in the show notes, because that's, um, you know, that's what we do. Cool stuff, huh, John? Do you use a keyboard with your uh, iPad Air 2? Not really. Okay. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. Well, I got a secret. I'll okay. Share it with you. Tell us your cool secret. Cool stuff. Yeah. So in the past, they had a pref pane and a site called Secrets. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's gone. It's okay. Been de- you can still download it from you know some places that make installers and install other things. Sure. So, um, but I did stumble across a site because I was searching for a tip, and the site, Dave, is which should make sense to people that dabble in the terminal, but it's defaults-write.com. Okay. And it's yep. basically... Because a lot of times when you do something from the terminal to uh, refine the behavior of OS ten, sometimes you have to say defaults write uh, in the terminal, sure. which is the name of the site. And then you give a value and then a, a setting for that, or a parameter, and then a setting for it. it. It does all sorts of interesting, magical things. So, as far as I can tell, that's current, and they have tips all the way up to 10.11. Um, oh, the one that caught cool. my eye, though, is so they have one here that will tell you how to configure Time Machine to limit the size for a backup file, which is kind of cool. Have you tried it? Does it work? Well, I haven't tried it yet. Okay. I have to think how to, uh, how to orchestrate this, because I don't know if I necessarily want to do anything to an existing backup. So I'll mm. create another one, then maybe fiddle with this. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, um, it, uh, I, I've tried several of these things. I don't recall one using defaults, right? I just remember editing the P list file, uh, of a, yeah. a time machine backup or, or of the, of the bundle of a time machine backup. And then that helped, but, uh, defaults, right. That's news to me. So I'm, uh, I'm very, I'm very curious. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Set up a size limit for backup volumes. Huh? Yeah, they call Look it. And that. so looking at it, it's pseudo defaults, right? And then library preferences, com.apple.timemachine, max size. Yeah. So, that, so, so it's That's something that cool. is available, but as far as I know, not through the GUI. Right. Probably a good thing because I don't know if they want people necessarily fiddling with this. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, they they should let people fiddle with this, by the way. But, you know, it's well, I think they should. So you, you won't, wouldn't have to partition a backup drive, which right now is, you know, uh, pretty much a standard strategy for people that want to use uh, a disk for Time Machine. Yeah. So you create a partition just for 
time machine and you make it as big as you think it should be. Right, right. Or you set the quota with, uh, if you have your Synology or another NAS that has an operating system, it'll typically let you dynamically set that. Some of them will. Yeah, you're right. This that Synology will with quotas. But actually, Synology's quotas are interesting because I have a USB drive connected to my Synology, and that's where I have it store my uh, time machine backups. But the Synology quotas don't apply to external volumes, only to the the volumes it defines. So it's like, oh, awesome. Uh, I say that. I honestly, I have not looked at that particular aspect of it since I installed DSM six. So maybe it's changed, but I doubt it, but you know, anything's possible. Hey, I got another one. I found, uh, uh actually it was Victor Kahiao from, uh, uh, well, he, he does all kinds of things, doesn't he? But, uh, used to do the typical Mac user podcast, but he posted a, uh, uh, a link to an app called download shuttle which is a, um, a downloader. It makes life it, a download accelerator. It lets you manage and accelerate your downloads. It'll start uh, multiple streams to pull downloads down, which can sometimes actually greatly increase the speed. And they've got plugins for Safari and all of that. So it just sort of attaches to, uh, mm-hmm. attaches to the, uh, you know, to, to the existing download thing. So uh, check it out. Put it out there. Thanks, Victor. He, he posted it to Facebook and couldn't ignore it. It was good stuff. Yeah. yeah. And here's his, um, so he does something called TerraTech. TerraTech. Uh, that's like, I don't know why well, that escaped me. Well, I'll paste it in our room here. And Great. It looks like it, he's currently doing that. It's uh, the last update was on April 1st. And it looks yeah. like it comes out monthly. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, listener Michael hipped us to... The fact that Best Buy has refurbished Apple Watch Sports, uh, the 38 millimeters start at two eleven sixty five. So uh, prices going down on Apple Watches, which is good. I like the fact that they've got the refurbs out there. So if anybody's interested, there you go. And thank you, Michael. I think that's only in store, but maybe not. Maybe it's maybe it's online too. Actually, I think maybe it is online based on what he's saying here. So. You ready for the next one, John? Yes, sir. Listener Jim says, uh, I travel a lot, both for business and pleasure. One of my challenges has been to find the right tool to carry all of my accessories, lightning cables, USB cables, Bluetooth headsets, Apple Pencil, and more. I tried a bunch of different things, but one day while surfing through Amazon, I found the, what's it? It's a weird name. It's the Bub M, B-U-B-M, Portable Universal Wrap Organizer. Uh, I like it for a few reasons. First, it's got a lot of options for storage, zipper pockets, elastic pockets, elastic band holders. Second, it wraps to a pretty small size, even loaded up with accessories. Third, the way it rolls, it allows me to stuff it almost anywhere. In particular, I like that it fits neatly into the drink holder sleeve on the outside of most backpacks. I like the product so much, I have two of them prepackaged at all times. One has my short trip supplies. The other has the additional stuff I'll need when I'm gone for a week or more. Makes it really easy to pack for trips on short notice and helps me to not forget anything. When I'm home or at work, I just keep everything in the case and pull out what I need. Thanks, Jim. Great stuff. And we will put a link to that in the, uh, in the show notes too. It's, uh, that's pretty cool. Bub M. On the subject of headphones, Donna writes... For under 50 bucks for a pair of ear, earbuds, your listeners could check out your buds at uh, yurbuds.com. 
She says, I have the Inspire 400 Apple compatible for music and phone calls. My problem is that I have very small ear canals. Most fall out even if I think of moving my head. Uh, these are amazing. I can tug on the cord and they still stay in place. So thank you very much. And yeah, Donna, um, your buds uses uh, JBL's uh, drivers in them. So good stuff. I think, I think we mentioned your buds on the show once, but it was years and years and years ago. So, uh, so it's good to, good to revisit because not everybody listens to every show, you know, John, believe it or not, I'm listening. Are you listening? All right. Well, uh, listener, Michael, is listening. Oh, I was going to do this and I was, oh, there it is. Listener Michael is listening most likely on his master and dynamic MEO five in-ear headphones. He says, I know they're not cheap, but they're around 200 bucks. They are fantastic sound made of brass in New York. So we talked about headphones uh, last week that were made of wood, the grain headphones. And now, uh, now those made of brass. So thanks. Yeah. I've heard good things about the MEO fives. I have not heard them, but, uh, but I've heard good things about them. So we'll put those in the, uh, in the show notes too. And while we're on the subject of sound, listener Jason says, uh, you spoke about computer speakers. Have you tried the Bowers and Wilkins MM1s? Such a beautiful sound. Just a thought. They're not cheap, of course, but lovely designed to go with the sound. So thanks, Jason. We'll put that in the show notes too. I have not checked out those. Again, I have heard very, very good things. Um, about them and Bowers and Wilkins always comes, you know, highly recommended um, in our, in our circles here, but no, I have not checked them out. I have one more just, thing. On just the, the name of the company. It, it sounds like I should know who they are. Yeah. Well, it sounds like maybe we should talk about them in, in like hushed tones. It's bad. It's bad. Oh, Bowers, those are Bowers and Wilkins. Oh, dude. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, one last thing on the audio side, uh, bringing the audio and tech back together. Josh says, I heard you briefly mention using an airport express to get airplay on your Sonos speakers. I would also suggest that you check out air Sonos while I have not tried it myself. It would be cool to see if it works. Yeah. Air Sonos is interesting. It is a, um, a piece of software that you run and you can run it on your Mac or you could run it. Uh, I know of people that are running it on like their Synologies or whatever, but it essentially creates an airplay streaming path to Sonos. So you can, um, so you can, you know, do exactly the same thing without having to buy any hardware uh, or at least not any, you need to put it on some sort of hardware, but you might already have the hardware as opposed to needing to buy like an airport express or, or if you don't have a, even if you have an airport express, if you don't have a Sonos that has a line in port and most Sonos units do not, have a line in port. The play five, I believe is the only speaker that does. And they've got other um, kind of non speaker things that have line in ports, but the, um, but this, this could be your, this could be your answer. So thank you very much, Josh, for bringing our attention to that. That looks pretty cool. I have not checked it out, but you got anything to add to our cool stuff found today, John, while we're, while we're tearing through these, we've got a couple left. I think I do. So here's one. So I, I got a goodie box i guess you could call it from uh our friends at ventev who i had not really looked at in the past um and they make a whole bunch of stuff which is maybe why i never really looked at them because uh, well it was overwhelming I don't, I don't know why well yeah because they they and they make stuff in, in you know cables and power accessories and stuff like that um 
I did find one thing. So a lot of them are similar to things that are not entirely unique. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that I was trying to find the the stuff that was uh, unique. But they also make a good... Well, here's the one thing that I found that I think could be useful for a lot of people here. And they call this their desktop charging hub. And I will post a link to it. Cool. Here's what it does for you. So it's kind of a a charging station, not only for your uh, iDevices or USB devices, but it also provides some power sockets as well. So what does it do? So you plug it into the wall. It has surge suppression and also tells you if the ground is correct, which is probably an important thing. (laughs) Not a bad idea. Yeah. And then it has two AC outlets and three USB outlets, but it also, it's round, but then it has slots in it. So the idea is that you could put your iDevice or tablet you know, it's big enough for that, you know, at an angle or also it accommodates them. So you're not putting them flat on the table or on adjacent surface. It has a way to let you put your device in there as well while it's charging. Cool. And it's thing. So, uh, 59.99 retail. A lot of their stuff here, when I say retail, it's just a uh, reference point. A lot of these you can, I mean, then I search on Amazon. It's, 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 it's almost certainly less. Yeah. Right. 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 Cool, man. But I like the also the status where it tells you yes the search suppression is working and and the grounding. I like products that do that because you know I actually did see a vendor that offered them and they had them in the break room, you know like the press room, and the lights that said that the thing was hooked up incorrectly were on. And I went back to them. And I'm like, you know the your product that they're displaying in that area of the of the exhibit hall like shows that there's something wrong with their wiring. They're like, really? Wow. We should talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You might. It was, it was like for reverse, reverse polarity or something. And I'm like, oh. what? Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah. Cool. All right. Back to you. All right. Uh, actually back to the listeners. So, uh, Devin suggests, he said, uh, and this actually looks really cool. He said a few weeks back, you mentioned a software program called smart draw and their smart draw web client. The timing was perfect as I needed a Visio-like diagramming program for a work project. I checked out SmartDraw, and while it looked cool, it also got me into looking at other free options. I came across Draw.io and was blown away at how flexible and smooth this software is. And best of all, it's completely free or seems it so far. You can create great flow diagrams quickly and easily, save them to your desktop or directly to cloud services and export them in a number of highly or a number of different formats. Highly recommend this free and awesome software. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes for sure. Thank you so much, Devin. Yeah. It's, um, it's amazing what is possible on the web right now, uh, with that kind of stuff. I mean, that the, the, you know, checking out smart draw totally opened my eyes to this. It's, um, it, you know, just being able to, we've never really had like a good Visio style thing available to Mac users, but now with this web stuff, we do. There's Omni, uh, Omni Graffle, I guess, but that's, it's, it doesn't do all this stuff. It's not intelligent enough to, to do like diagrams where you can move things around and all of that. It, 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 it does great looking diagrams, but the diagrams themselves aren't intelligent when you're working with them, uh, even though the output looks good. So, yeah. What is, what is this? It has to be JavaScript or something. Well, I don't, I don't know about draw.io, but I know smart draw is all, uh, HTML5, CSS3, and JavaScript. Yeah. And, okay. Yep. Wow. It's amazing. And it's, well, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. I should get you a, a set up to test out SmartDraw, man. It, I mean, you'll be, especially if you've used Visio in, you know, past corporate lives and stuff, you'll, you'll just like, your jaw will hit the floor. It's amazing what they can do in mm-hmm. a web browser. You'll, like I said, using it, I forgot. 
I was in a web browser. It's pretty, in, pretty impressive. So. As it should be. As it, I totally agree, man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So thanks Devin for, uh, for bringing us back to that. And I'll, I'll check out draw.io too, but uh, I'll put, I'll put both of them in the show notes since we're talking about them. And I'll also put fast Fari in the show notes. Ronald writes, uh, the app, uh, fast. He says, uh, fast Fari allows you to quickly launch a favorite site in the Safari app or built in Safari web controller, the built-in browser, uh, on iOS or the built-in browser in fast Fari. Therefore, oh, you know, what? I'm, 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 he had some other things that he was writing and I jumped in the wrong spot. Let me rewind because Ronald deserves that. He says, I'm writing today to see if you guys might be interested in an app I built. It was really made for iPhones with 3D touch, but it works on all iPhones. The main feature is that you can store any four websites you like as a set of quick actions on the home icon. The main reason I use this is due to the fact that the quick actions that Safari provides are not always what I need. The app, now, now we're here again, called FastFari, allows you to quickly launch a favorite site in the Safari app or in a built-in Safari web controller inside FastFari. Since the app also supports split view, so you can have two browsers open in split view, and because it's using the built-in Safari web controller, even if you stay inside FastFari, you can stay logged into any websites you already visit and all of that stuff. So we'll put a link to FastFari in, uh, in the show notes. This is pretty cool. If you've got websites, like you said, that you visit regularly, this allows you to sort of pull them all together and, and access them quickly. And if you have a phone with 3D Touch, well, even better. You know, you can, you can dig right in. So we'll put... Uh, We'll put all of that in the show notes. Sorry for bungling the uh, the delivery there initially, Ronald. It's uh, it's pretty cool stuff, and I always love it when we get a cool stuff found that's written by one of you because that's cool. We you know we, we're a community here. We're a family, so we like everybody to know what everybody in the family's up to, even if that means you know staring at each other's stink eyed at the dinner table sometimes. Wait, what? How you doing, John? Huh? Huh? Uh, Mike, couple, a couple left. Mike says, uh, I've heard you mention several times in recent episodes that this is the year of the router. Of course, I know you were primarily talking about all the cool new tech being rolled out to improve wireless throughput, but I also hear both of you waxing poetic on the virtues of a highly configurable router. In fact, in the past few months, all of your discussion has left me wanting for something more than my sixth gen airport extreme. Sure. It's a great router. It's stable and excellent, but as you know, dumbed down about as far as it can be. That's where my search started. Based on your recommendations, I looked into several of the higher-end routers with the capability of loading DDWRT, but that is when I stumbled upon PFSense. If you don't know, PFSense is a free, open-source, professional-grade router software package built to run on FreeBSD. That's right, a Unix-based router that can run on almost any modern hardware. It will even run on a virtual machine. Once I figured out what this thing could do, I wondered why it had never been mentioned on the show before. And it, it, to be fair, we've, we've mentioned it in passing. I think you answered a question about PF since John and, and we, like, like I said, we mentioned it in passing, but, but never with a focus. He said it, I decided pretty quickly that I wanted to give this product a try, but unfortunately I didn't have any spare hardware to devote to the cause. That's where it gets interesting. Based on another one of your recommendations, I looked to AliExpress to find a rig to run the router. I found a 1.6 gigahertz quad-core Celeron fanless PC, 4 gigs of RAM, 32 gig SSD, and dual gigabit Ethernet ports for 139 bucks. Since this was easily within the price range of the routers that I'd been looking at, I decided to pull the trigger. 
Setup was a breeze with a thumb drive installer downloaded from the PFSense website and configuration took no time at all. In less than an hour, I had a fully functional router that was running Snort for intrusion detection, VPN, QoS, uh, traffic shaping, network antivirus, and WAN quality connection monitoring. Best of all, with all of that running, I've yet to see my little Celeron go over 20% utilization. As a bonus, my airport found a new role as a wireless access point located in a much better location for Wi-Fi connectivity. I have to say that my PF box has been up and running strong for over a month now without a hiccup. I highly recommend you give it a try. There's so much built into this package that I just had to pass it along. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, that that's what we needed was uh, something else to burn up all of our free time geeking out on this. But no, seriously, that's um, that's sort of the point is uh, is this. So, yeah, I've heard a lot about PF Sense. Your description, and I wanted to, the reason I went through the whole thing uh, here, folks, is you know, a description of getting this box and and having it totally set up and running within an hour. That's, that's the part that kind of convinced me, all right, yeah, I should, I should take a look at this. I mean, it, you, you know, there's been things like this. In fact, this is like what's old is new again. My first router was not a router. It was a full-size tower running Linux with two ethernet cards in it. One that plugged into my um, ISDN modem, believe it or not. And the other that was, uh, actually, no, my ISDN modem had a router in it. So it was technically not my first one, but, um, but my first cable, my, you know, I didn't have a router for my cable modem. So I used a, a, a Linux box do, doing essentially this, obviously, you know, in the last, whatever, 20 years, it's been a little more refined. So this is cool stuff. Thank you. Mike, and now I know what I'm going to do with my free time. So I'll put a link. I ran that too. It was a while ago, but it was uh, when I was managing an internet connection. I remember that we ran, I think it was called Firewall 1, and it was run on a sun okay. box with a spark. Well, that's the, I didn't even, I didn't have any software. But it was a computer because I, I actually, for various reasons, which I won't get into, but I actually needed to modify the routing table. Sure. It was the router, so I could do that. Right. Right rules and stuff, but it also had this commercial package to protect us from from the evils of okay the internet. Um, yeah, mine when I did it, I I was just using the firewall rules uh, built into Linux. Uh, when I I mean there was no extra software package. It was just like okay, well I want traffic to route from here to there. I want to do NAT routing. Yeah, I want a DHCP server, so let's set that up too. And it was you know all of that stuff. Um, it's all built in like a, a, whatever it was, I think it might've been Red Hat. I don't remember, you know, which Linux distribution it was. This was like 1998, I guess, uh, right after we moved to our house in Buda. So, um, yeah, but you know, it's just all, it's all right there. It's all built in. Your Mac could do it too. It's just sort of expensive way to route your network. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, uh, one last thing on that subject, I put up a video earlier this week. Uh, we had talked on the show about how not only do you need to be aware of your speeds, but you need to be, uh, we talked about QoS and traffic shaping and making quality service, making sure that when some or many devices on your network were using lots of bandwidth, that it wasn't negatively affecting other devices. And we talked about running a speed test where you also had a ping going in a terminal window and you watch the ping. And if you, while you're running the speed test, the, you know, the ping times spike, it means that the speed test is making your pings not turn around as fast as they should. 
And, and that was sort of the point at which when I did those tests, I decided, yeah, I, I probably should turn on QoS in my router. And I didn't. It totally solved it. Um, well, DSL reports makes it easier. Speedtest.dslreports.com will uh, do that ping test in your browser for you while it's also doing a speed test. And then to make life even easier, it gives you a grade uh, for many aspects of your connection, including this one, which they call buffer bloat. And I think we used that term the last time we talked about this, John, but, um, but you know, if your buffer bloat number in your speed test, you, you should be doing this from a wired connection. Cause you don't, you want to take out as many variables as you can. Right. So, you know, a wired, uh, a computer wired into your router, do the test. If you get a B or better on the buffer bloat, I wouldn't stress about it. The sad part is most everyone that's been doing this test with an airport extreme router has been getting D's and F's with buffer bloat. And it's because Apple institutes no quality of service stuff in their routers. Um, some routers have it as an option, but even with it turned off, kind of already do some of this traffic management to, to keep exactly this from happening. But, um, but Apple does not. So, and there's no way to turn it on. So maybe if you run an airport extreme, you don't want to do this test because you don't want to find out that, um, that, you know, your, your router can't handle it when somebody's taking too much bandwidth. But, uh, anyway, there you go. That's, that's what I have to say about it, John. Did you run this on yours? I ran it on my wireless machine and yeah, it gave me horrible grades because I don't know, maybe because I did wireless. I'll it could be it wired. Maybe yeah, I'll try you... it right now. You think I should do it now? You can sure do it right now. I mean, what's the, the, the harm? The only harm is it would, it would, you know, short term degrade our Skype connection, but yeah, go ahead and do it. See what happens. Nah. All right. I'll well, you, you know what, John, why don't you do it while we, uh, while we talk about our sponsors and then you can come back and tell us what happened. Ah, good idea. All right. You like free stuff. I like free stuff. You like a VPN. I do. I like to use a VPN when I'm pretty much anywhere that I don't control the network. Uh, you know, if I'm at a coffee shop at a hotel, even if I'm at John's house, I like to use a VPN because I don't know what kind of snooping and spying that guy's doing on me. So ProXPN, if you visit ProXPN.com slash MacGeekGab, is a VPN that's available to you for free. It works on your Mac, your iPhone, your iPad. It's available to you for free. It's that simple. Every month, it's free. If you need more bandwidth than the free account allows, and you might. But frankly, you might not, depending on what you're doing. But if you need more, then you can use coupon code GAB50, GAB, G-A-B, 50, to get yourself up to 50% off of all of their stuff. That's also for life, by the way. Really, you just got to check it out. ProXPN.com slash MacGeekGab. It's free. You should have this set up on your phone, on your Mac, so that you're ready to go when you need it. And because you can sign up for free, it's not going to cost you anything unless you need a lot of it and then use coupon code gab 50. I've got this on my Mac. I've got it on my iPads uh, and on my iPhone. It, it works great. Their overall philosophy is really what you want in a VPN company. Dead serious about privacy. They go to great lengths to maintain their users, privacy and security online. I've read through their terms and conditions. I'm kind of like a legal terms freak, but frankly, there's stuff, um, it's not going to make a whole lot of, you know, lawyers happy with wherefore art thou and all those things. It's really easy to read. And uh, man, they're, they're right on top of it all. 
And the same team that does this testing of new software is their support team. The people that test the servers and the products and all of that stuff, those are the people answering your questions. Super easy to use. You got to check it out. ProXPN.com slash MacGeekCab is where you go. Just sign up for your free account, get it installed. If you find you need more, remember you've got that coupon code GAB50, G-A-B-5-0 to get you up to 50% off of all the other services that they sell. Our thanks to ProXPN for sponsoring this episode. Upgrading your Mac is something we're always doing around here. There's always something you can add, something you want to tweak. And frankly, upgrades, especially the right upgrades, can really make it feel like you got a new computer. If you're not running an SSD yet, you definitely want to check that out. And Otherworld Computing, our second sponsor today, is absolutely the place to start. Go there, visit MacSales.com. Go to SSD, plug in the number of your, or the, you know, pick the model of your Mac. It's a MacBook Pro, it's an iMac, whatever it is. And not only do they have SSDs at great prices, I mean, you know, these things have gotten so cheap. Yeah, you're looking at a 240 gig SSD for 105 bucks, a 480 gig for 195. But then they'll also sell you the kit that fits inside your exact computer. So it gives you the tools. It gives you the SSD, of course. And if there's any mounting brackets or anything like that, they've just got it. They've already figured this out. They know exactly what you're going to need and they will sell it to you and then ship it to you. They'll also give you the instructions, both written instructions as well as a video that you can watch. Their videos are awesome. I, I watch them all the time before I go and do an upgrade because it's really nice to be able to see exactly what it is you're going to do before you have to do it on your own piece of hardware, you know, cause you got to get it right. Let's face it. You know, this is, this is the one iMac you have and you're doing that. So you certainly want to get it right. Watch the video first, know that you have all the exact right parts, tools, and instructions at your fingertips and then get started. Makes it super easy. So you got to check this out. Go to MacSales.com. pick what it is that you want to put in your Mac, an SSD memory, Maybe even just external storage. Of course, you don't need a video for that. Just buy the external storage that you like and plug it in. You're good to go. They've got great deals on that. They always have great enclosures. They test everything insanely over there. They're obsessive in an awesome way. It's absolutely the best customer service and test environment that I've ever experienced. These folks really do care about getting it right. And that's good for you. That's good for them. That's good for all of us. You got to check it out. Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com. Our thanks to Otherworld Computing for sponsoring this episode. How do we do, John? Uh, this test is nonsense. <laughs> okay. On my wire connection, it gave me a D, a D, and an F. Yet it says I'm getting 27 megabits down, which is what I should be getting, and five up. Sure. Well, it had, so this has nothing to do with... It, the buffer bloat grade that DSL reports give you has, is, is only about your buffer bloat. The speed grade that they give you is their decision about how fast your connection is versus how fast an internet connection should be. So mm -hmm. I, I would ignore their grade on your speeds. If you're getting the speeds that you're supposed to get, then don't worry about it. What, essentially what they're saying is you're, you've chosen to buy 
uh, speeds that are slower than than we deem uh, appropriate. Yeah, but 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 that's not correct. You, you know, your speeds work for you, so that's fine. It's the the buffer bloat number that you need to to worry about. So maybe you need to turn on QoS on your router. The, my question would be: Did you do the other test when we talked about it like a month or two ago with the the pings and watching them while the uh, you know while another speed test runs? No, I don't think so. Okay, because that would be here. It's saying idle latency is like tens of milliseconds, which that's good. Yeah, but that's what it's checking is the delta, right? It looks at the idle latency and then it looks at the latency during the test. And if it jumps from ten to say one hundred and fifty. Well, now you've got, you know, it's pretty obvious why that latency is increasing. It's the speed test. So that means soaking your cable. Well, then it shows two graphs and they're, they're steady, though they're at a figure that I guess is larger than they like. So, okay. Uh, no, the two graphs are your downstream speed and your upstream speed. Again, it's testing many, many oh. things. So, yeah. Y- yeah, your speeds are probably, I mean, it's, you're, what you're telling me is your speeds are what you expect them to be. So don't worry about that. It's the buffer bloat's the only thing to... Uh, to really, oh, well, I'm to not going to worry at. about it. Okay. All right. I, I, I don't feel there's a problem. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Y- yeah. It, it, it's, th- this is knowledge. It's not, you don't have to take action with it, but it does help explain. Like, remember when we started doing this show and longtime listeners probably will remember this. There were a couple of times where mid the middle of the show, uh, you know, we used to record on Sunday nights. It was after my kids would go to bed and we'd be doing the show and suddenly I, I'd like have some kind of problem and we'd have to pause and I'd text my wife and find out, oh, she was uploading, you know, a bunch of photos because she would go and get her stuff done after the kids went to bed. And uh, had to, we had to tell her, stop, don't do not do that while we're recording because it screws up the latency. You know, the latency is really important for something just like this, right, where John and I are talking. Mm-hmm. If you add, start adding, you know, hundreds of milliseconds delay between us, it can get weird. And uh, yeah, and, I mean, you should have been like, you should know better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. No, no, but she you did. should be like, why is the network being stupid? Why is the net? And that's what, <laughs> so this would have identified that for, I mean, we identified it in practice, but you know, this type of test would have identified it for us. And really back then, I, and I did try to, to enable QoS back then because that would solve this. But the problem was, the routers just weren't fast enough 10 years ago, or at least the ones I had weren't fast enough 10 years ago to do QoS without just totally cratering this, your overall network speeds anyway. You know, it's a lot of work for the router to watch all the traffic coming through, especially when a lot of it is happening at high speeds and start like limiting things. It just takes CPU power. Um, one thing I will say about QoS, and we'll move on, um, is if you try this, one of the listeners in the room said uh, at com slash stream said, uh, you know, I, I tried this and I enabled QoS on my Netgear router and it still, you know, gave me like a horrible buffer bloat grade. Um, a lot of times when you enable QoS, people have a tendency to set the speeds too high. QoS, quality of service, essentially what you're doing is you're telling your router, never let things get to the point where we're hitting the maximum speed of my cable modem. And that's a hard thing to swallow, right? Because you want to get the maximum speed of your cable modem. But the problem is when you do, these latency things kick in because the cable modem has to limit you. And so it just, you know, puts a hard cap on it. And that's it. When you hit that, nothing else gets through, which slows other things down. So the idea is you tell your router, look, 
only hit, say, 90% of my maximum speed, maybe 95 if your router's fast enough um, to handle, you know, getting that close to the limit, because it's going to spill over a little bit, uh, or it potentially will. So you tell your router, you know, hit 90% of my limit, both upstream and downstream, and then let the router do the shaping of the traffic. And then that way your cable modem, the, its limits never kick in. And that's the point. So, but it's hard. You know, you, you pay for this speed. You're like, well, I want to use it all. Well, but you don't want to hit the limit. And that's the trick. So anyway, anyway, you know, that's, uh, that's where it goes. Hey, uh, one comment about fusion drives from, uh, from episode 600, we were talking about, uh, whether or not to get a, uh, uh, one listener was, was at, we were advising a listener whether to get a fusion drive or a separate SSD and a, and an external drive. And Tim says, uh, quick comment about that. You indicated that the fusion drive SSD may only be 64 gigs. He says, I believe the one terabyte fusion drive is just a 24 gig SSD now, whereas the two and three terabyte versions still include the larger 128 gig SSD. Uh, and he is right about that based on everything we have seen in the teardowns and all that. It used to be that the 128 gig SSD or was used in all of the fusion drives, but now the one terabyte fusion drive only uses a 24 gig SSD. Um, so really no point in getting that and even thinking about splitting it. Cause there's not much you could do with a 24 gig SSD on its own in the fusion drive though. People seem very happy with it. It's obvi obviously Apple software is managing it. Well, and um, I'm sure, obviously, this was a cost-cutting measure, but uh, but not one that they made uninformed. So I, I think it works out okay. But be aware that that's what you're that's what you're actually buying. Just just so you know. So yes. So there you go. Yeah, Furby's uh, one one last thing we'll say uh, because he has a great analogy here. Furby says. In terms of QoS, he says, it's like a garden hose. You want as much water as possible coming out the end, but not so much that you blow a fitting. Yeah, and that's a good way of, of saying it. Yeah, you just, you, you know, only put so much in and it'll work out on the other side. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it, it, I, I will say it. It took me probably a year or two to finally, like, swallow the fact that I had to not have my limits, you know. And get right. maximum. Yeah. Well, but you, anyway. you, you shouldn't put the pedal to the metal, even though you can. This, this is a perfect example. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Close um, to the metal. Close, close to the, well, be. that's the trick, right? Yeah. Is, is, you know, how close do you want to go? Yeah. It's crazy. Um, also on show, uh, you want we'll come back to all that stuff. Uh, I do want to share one tip though, from, uh, from Marty, because this is handy. And then we'll get to a couple of questions here. Cause you know, it's what we do. Uh, Marty was having some issues with, um, with, I, uh, well, had a question about iCloud photo library and she was, uh, her computer told her that, uh, she had migrated her, her, uh, data to a new computer for whatever reason, and needed to resync with iCloud Photo Library. And when she went to do that, when she turned on photos, it said, hey, you don't have enough storage in your iCloud Photo Library to add all of these to your existing one. The thing was, the what she had on her computer was mostly a copy of what was in iCloud Photo Library. She just needed to get it back in sync. But because it was a new computer, iCloud was not 
recognizing that. She presumed, and it turns out correctly, that simply saying, don't worry about it, don't buy more storage, just go ahead and do whatever you can, uh, would merge things together and resync the whole thing. And she is happy to share with us that that worked. Uh, it took a few days because she had, you know, I don't know, tens of gigabytes of, of stuff in the in her iCloud photo library, as one would. And uh, and it worked out totally fine. It got to the end and everything was good. She said, you know, it complained to her, but throughout the process, it didn't give her a whole lot of feedback throughout the process, but she did keep the uh, system preferences iCloud window open, looking at her storage utilization there just to make sure that it wasn't creeping close to the limit, which is really, really smart. Um, and it never did. It, in fact, it never crept up. And I think by the time it all synced up, uh, it might've even gone down a little bit, but, uh, she said she doesn't notice anything missing and everything looks good. So I just wanted to share that because we get questions like this often. And I know there's no guarantee that everybody's going to have the same experience as Marty and you should do exactly what Marty did, which is back up your library and store it offline. First, do not leave it connected to your Mac, have it off. And then let it start this sync. If it totally blows everything away, okay, well, you've got your local copy of your library there. Everything's good. But um, but it worked fine. So chalk one up for, for iCloud Photo Library. And thanks for sharing that, Marty. While we're on the subject of photos, John, you want to take us to uh, Joseph's question? Oh, boy. Yes. Okay. Right. Joseph, Joseph. Yeah, this, um, well, it, it's a publishing photos and Flickr, but I ran into this, and I hope you verified too, but unexpected behavior. So, hi guys, I give up on this one. I'm staring at this page from Flickr, and I've tried to drag even just one JPEG file, and I keep getting a pop-up asking if I want to stay on this page or leave the page. If I stay on the page, I just revert back to this page. If I leave it, I then see a window with the image. How do you get images into Flickr.com and actually... When I first looked at this, I'm like, well, it seems pretty obvious to me. So what happens is if you go to Flickr, which is a photo service, a uh, publishing service, uh, you can upload individual photos, but you can also define an album, and that's what um, that's what is happening here with uh, Joe. Uh, but he gets unexpected behavior. So what happens is it says, well, drag stuff here, and you know, I'll add it to the album for you. I think the problem is that it's doing this from within a browser, and actually, based on prior discussions, Dave, this should work, but it doesn't, or at least it didn't work on any machines that I have, so I don't know if it's the version of a bug in the OS or Safari, particular version of Safari, but my expectation, and you can do this in a lot of cases, is that if you drag a picture from the Finder to Safari in the place where it says, you know, drag stuff here, please... It does exactly what he says. My expectation would be that it would add it to the album. It would upload it. And this is certainly possible using other environments. I don't know why it's not with theirs. Yeah. Um, the thing is, what you'll also see is on the bottom of the create a new album window, you will also see a bar that has thumbnails of all the photos that um, it sees. And you can filter on this too, so it makes it manageable. Um, so initially, I guess you see all your photos, probably in chronological order, that you've ever uploaded to them. you got to drag them from there to... Uh, from the browser. You have to do this within the browser, I guess is what I'm saying, mm. using the browser interface. But then I thought, but you know what? I've never really done this. Why is this, Dave? Because 
I've used some sort of photo management software, and the thing is, uh, whether it be iPhoto or Aperture or now Photos, um, but all of them give you a way. Uh, and also the nice thing is that OS X does integrate with Flickr. So make sure you go to the Internet Accounts portion and uh, either on your iOS or um, OS X or whatever you're going to call it next week. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and add your Flickr account. You can. And then it'll be... So what happens, for example, in photos is if you highlight an album and then you go to the share icon, which is the uh, square with the up arrow, you'll see Flickr is one of the options. And then if you choose that, it'll ask you some questions, uh, you know, title and, and I think, you know, apply some conditions. And it'll upload your album from the photo management software to Flickr. So that's what I would suggest. So one is, yes, it's... Mis- I don't know why it doesn't work. It should. Don't you think it should, Dave? I mean, have you ever dragged a photo from your desktop into a browser and have the thing on the other end say, yep, okay, that's that's nice? Yeah, I, I mean, it's that means you be, want to upload. Yeah, it's right. HTML5 and CSS and, and JavaScript working together and all of that. But yeah, and I would expect that Flickr would do that. I'm, I'm with you on this one. Yeah. But I tried on two different machines. Again, they're running the same browser and the sure. same version of the OS. Yeah, that would be the um, only thing is maybe on try iOS, a different browser. I mean, on iOS, the thing is actually I've had issues getting my Instagram stuff to go over to Flickr. So I actually use So under iOS, Flickr does have an uploader. I don't hmm. believe they have one for OS X, or at least I've never oh, had no. the need to use it in that. Uh, or maybe I just you, don't have it you, because I, I would always use my photo software to upload to Flickr. I never would. You're the one upload. that told me about Flickr uploader for the Mac where it scans your whole library and syncs it up. We, we talked and, and unfortunately it was great. Worked awesome for a long time. And then uh, about it still works awesome. You just have to now buy a Flickr Pro account to use the auto uploader for the Mac. Yeah, I don't think I ever really. Uh, I would have sworn. Really gone into that feature. Maybe huh. I told you about yeah, it. But yeah, I guess yeah. Maybe I just. Yeah, no need for it. But, yeah. um, so anyway. you're not to answer the question. You're not crazy. It's just it, I, I don't know if they broke what used to work before, but I couldn't get it to work. Right with the current implementations. So. Right, right. All right. Um, while we're on the uh, photos and web interface thing, and also iCloud, I think I'm going to hit two of those three with Sarah's question here. She um, really, it's more of a, a, a pointing it out, but she said, uh, I was recently asked by a friend if I could show her how to set up a group in contacts so that she could email them easily collectively. It's something I've done a lot, so I thought it would be no problem, but she only has an iPad and does not have a Mac. Hence my rant. Apple does not provide a way to set up contact groups on an iOS device. It requires logging into iCloud.com. And that too is not possible from an iOS device. It seems that Apple has not seen any reason people would need to log into iCloud.com on their iOS devices. But at the same time, they've touted the new iPad Pro as a replacement for those coming to the platform from a PC uh, for others replacing a laptop. How can it be a replacement for something that it actually requires you to have. It seems they make no provision for someone who does not own a desktop or a laptop, but wants to use in the case of my friend, an iPhone, an iPad and an Apple TV. I do know that there are third party apps that can enable setting groups and contacts, but that's not my point. Apple should make provisions for this. You're right, Sarah. And, and it is frustrating when you try to visit iCloud on your iOS device and really any site on your iOS device that, detects what device it is and then just says, no, no, you have to use our app, right? I mean, it's fine if it says, you know, we've got an app, maybe you want to do it this way. 
but it is frustrating when you just get that brick wall and you're like, wait a minute, you know, especially with an iPad pro, you know, this, this screen's bigger than my laptop. I, I think we can, I think we can get this done here. Well, um, you might be able to get around it and yeah, uh, I, I tried this with iCloud. I didn't go as deep as making a, a contact group. Uh, but if you visit a website and it comes up in a mobile format or a way that is obvious that it's detecting what you have and, and not giving you the features you want, hit that same little share icon at the bottom that John mentioned, scroll around on the bottom bar. You'll get two bars, one for sharing out and then one for sort of other functions, copying and running, um, running workflows and, and that sort of thing. And you will find often toward the end, but you can reorder these an icon for request desktop site. If you visit iCloud.com on your iPad and then hit the share icon and, and choose request desktop site, it will show you the normal desktop site of iCloud and let you work around that. There may be reasons why it won't work on an iPad and you might get deeper in and, and hit walls, functionality walls, but your iPad at that point will be announcing itself as a Mac. So the web server should not be making any uh, prejudicial decisions against your iPad. It's possible again, that the software will not work. Uh, it'll, you know, be trying to do something that's not capable, uh, not possible on a touch device, but uh, for the most part should work for you. So bear that in mind. It's always good to remember. Uh, let's see, John, you want to, uh, you want to take us to Norv? Norv's got a real interesting one. Let's go. I didn't know about this. Sweet. We learned, we learned, we, we got to add, we, you know, we got to get our three new things, man. So let's go. I think we've exceeded. That I, time, I, yeah, I we? feel like I certainly have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the cool stuff found kind of takes care of that for me. Um, but all right. Yeah. Anyway, but Norv writes in, um, like that. He congratulated us on 600 saying we must have long beers, long beards. No, not really. No, no, I think we're both... Uh, we shave with hairs. Trimmed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he has several Apple computers and an iMac that is used for family productions is running OS 10, 10.11.4, which is the latest. It appears to be almost full on its 500 gig drive. Huh. All right, about 45 available. When I check to see what it is filling it up using disk utility, it shows that other is the culprit. Ah. Uh, doesn't tell me um, what that is. But there are tools to do that. And so he used Daisy Disk, thinking it would help me. When scanning in administrator, it appears the culprit is dot document revisions dash V100. Um, what is that, you may ask? And I'll tell you what that is. So one, because it begins with a dot, it's a directory that's normally invisible. If you try to see it from the finder, you won't be able to, even if you navigate to the, the root. Um, but his question was, how do I deal with this? Um, <clears throat> and I'll tell you how to deal with this, Dave. Now, this is very unintuitive. I, I, I didn't know this off the top of my head, but I eventually figured it out here. So this is a feature that they introduce in a lot of Apple programs that will actually eliminate the need for you to save in that it will do it on occasion. I'm, I'm not sure what the algorithm is, but it'll create a version of a document whenever you make a change. And that can be handy. And typically you'll see this, I think, if you hover over the... Uh, Actually, I don't use the feature that much, to tell you the truth. I don't know if you do, Dave. Versioning? 
I mean, Preview, I think, lets you do it. And some of the Apple programs do versioning, and I, th- I think they support it on iOS as well. I've never really done much with it, to tell you the truth. Yeah, not, not, not a ton, to be honest, no. Um, but you may ask, well, how do I disable this? And it's totally off the wall where you have to go. But what you have to do is go into uh, Settings, General. There's going to be a box saying, Ask to keep changes when closing documents. Well, if you check that box... That disables versioning, right? Based on what I found, but it, you know, it, it'd be nice if the box was like, you know, enable or disable versioning and not ask to keep changes. Because what's happening here by you saying ask to keep changes, it's saying, okay, I'm smart enough to know when to do this, right? As far as I could tell. So, huh. so that's item number one. But then item number two is Daisy just showed the stuff. Now you, you want to be careful here. You know, of course, make sure all the documents are backed up. But um, you could go into the terminal and do a sudo rm-rf. Okay, be careful. Remember, yeah. everybody, rm-rf is recursive force. And that'll destroy everything. It means d- delete everything after whatever you type next. That's right. Yeah. And so here you would put slash dot and the name of that directory, and then it would just get rid of that directory. Right. Or I suppose you could go into the directory if you wanted to and do the, yep. you know, just to, but uh, yeah, be careful when you do this. And I think you may be able to do it from the finder, but you have to, to be able to display this. And normally the finder doesn't display invisible directories. So oh, but an easy way to do it would be to navigate there in the terminal and then do yeah. an open space dot. And that will open where, with a current directory dot uh-huh. as a finder window and you can do whatever you want in the finder. I, I've been using, I, I know I've been using that okay. more and more. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a terminal guy too. Right. And so I'm very comfortable there, but sometimes it's like, you know, I just want to do something in the finder and more and more I've been using open space dot. Just, it's all lowercase open space period return. And wherever you are in the terminal, now you are there in the finder. Nice. Yeah, I know that's, you know, whatever. It's kind of handy. Especially for things like this, where you're like, oh, I need to navigate there. I'm not sure exactly where it is. And then, boom, there you go. So that's my tip for you. I told Good. you we were going to learn new things. Yeah. 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 What's, what's next? What's next? Jeez, um, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it, we'll, um, we'll go to PJ, because this is an interesting one. Uh, it, I think it might be good for a discussion, John, but maybe not. I don't know. And as soon as I find it, I'm vamping here. Here it is. PJ asks, any of you guys think of a good reason for a Ram disc or have you used it in the past? My only thought is if you have a gigabit ethernet connection and a very slow spindle hard drive, uh, a Ram disc would allow you to transfer at full speed over the network. I don't like, I don't like the idea to use it for caches, but for video or other editing, I do understand it. I have a 2012 MacBook Pro Retina with a 512 gig SSD. Reads are 450 megs a second, writes 400. A RAM disk, he says, I've seen over one gig, but I'm routinely getting 800 megs reads, 700 meg writes. An old spindle drive from a few years ago, reads are in about 100 megabytes, writes are in the tens of megabytes. So there's a, I, I see the reason, right? Um, and it's a good question. Uh, my thoughts about a RAM disk, you know, using it as an intentional cache where you're putting things there that you're, you know, you're going to read and write. So, you know, the term cache is, is sort of 
a misnomer, but you know, I think you have to, when, when talking about a Ram disc, you have to understand the one uh, important rule. And that is when your computer turns off, the contents of your Ram disc are gone, not stored in a, in any way they are gone. So anything you have there is data at risk, right? So you've got to be careful. And I, but I get it. You know, if you're, especially if you're working on something over a network or, or something, you might, you might get enough benefit out of it that, it, that it's worth the risk, but you have to manage it in such a way that you're at least acknowledging that that risk exists. So, you know, I'm not, I don't know. I, I don't know that I would do a, a Ram disc. I mean, I don't have use for one, but I imagine somebody could. What do you think about this, John? The only thing I use it for would be things like the, the, the one thing that occurred that came to my mind. And, and I think there's still a need for this. The last I researched, this is some photo and movie editing needs scratch space or workspace or temporary space. Yeah. And a lot of times they ask for a disk directory. Well, I think a RAM disk is perfect for that because to me, it indicates that the program has identified an area that it needs to do things quickly or, you know, destructively, if you will. Sure. Uh, so why not have something that's uh, fast? On the other hand, you know, I mean, well, RAM is faster than an SSD, but not by other magnitude. Um, right. Right. Yeah, well, I guess I'm saying, saying maybe right, for something like that, but it did. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. I think SSDs eliminate a lot of the need for having that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, PJ's numbers. It's fun to play with. If support you, that. Yeah. You know, especially, you know, if you, if you need to do fast access. But yeah. I mean, how much faster, to, <laughs> you know, is it really going to be? Right. Well, Baseman Mike uh, in the chat room says it's popular for uh, temporary storage for PC gaming for decreased loading times, right? So you you take the game. Okay, and, levels or whatever. Yeah, you know, and you, you move the whole thing to a RAM disk, and then that way when you jump level, yeah, like you said, when you jump levels or whatever, you're not, you know, just waiting for it to load and load and load. Um, that actually, that makes sense, especially if you're talking about a game that's on a, you know, a DVD or whatever, you know, you move it to a Ram disc and now, wow, that still happens. Hmm. Right. I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't play a lot of games, but I would imagine some have to be distributed that way. Don't don't they? Or no, you just download it and cash it all. I don't know. I don't know. I've, I, I have some steam games and those are all downloaded and then stored, but yeah, they, they, yeah, you could put those, you could, you know, set your steam stuff to store to a ram disk i mean you'd have to re-download it every time but you know i don't know it's it's just interesting that's all i like to think about this stuff it's fun hey um rj has a comment speaking of fun stuff to uh to think about rj has a comment about uh about last week's show uh where we got at the end into uh into all kinds of crazy crazy things about the future of apple and uh, so we'll let uh, we'll let RJ share what uh, what he shared with us. Hey guys, following up on your future of Apple thing, uh, just three quick things. One, uh, Dave, your point about uh, having your own cloud—they should be buying Drobo slash transporter slash Synology and pivot off of that to do something really good there. Second thing, they've really dropped the ball. 
This is RJ, by the way, in Cedar Mill, Oregon. Uh, second thing, they really dropped the ball is the not having an Amazon Echo type product. Here's all this stuff sitting on home servers and in the cloud and everything else. Voice accessible. It's become the second most used tech device in our household. The third thing, uh, I'm old. I learned how to program from uh, in 1965 from Kemeny and Kurtz, the guys who wrote BASIC. So that shows you how old I am. Uh, and my eyes are going. So this gray gray font stuff that's so popular on the Mac OS and the web too, screw it. Give me some contrast. Thanks a lot, guys. Shut me off. You got it. <laughs> Thanks so much, RJ. Yeah, that was a fun little discussion to have last week, John. It, um, it reminds me that we should, you know, do that not every week and perhaps not even every month, but uh, give ourselves the freedom to do that every now and then because it is kind of fun. It's, uh, it's the kind of stuff we would talk about if we just got together and talked. So it's fun. Any, uh, there's, we've got a couple of other things on the list for today. Uh, any, anything in particular that you want to jump to, John, or, or, uh, or shall I pick? Hmm. I, I actually, there is one. I, look at the rest. I want to go to this thing. In the last show, we talked about avoiding double NAT um, on, uh, on your Verizon Fios connection. And we talked about the fact that there was, or what we thought was the fact, that there was no way to do this. Well, we were wrong. Uh, and several of you pointed, many, many of you, in fact, pointed this out. Um, I'm going to play Scott's comment. And then Jan had some, uh, some specific details to share, but I think Scott will explain it well. And then, and then we'll, we'll add Jan wrote us this amazing email. He's like the text ASCII, uh, diagramming master. This dude doesn't need smart drawer, draw.io. He's it, it's, it was amazing. He cooked together this email with different colors and stuff. And it was all just text. And it, the diagrams made perfect sense about how you should plug things in. And, but I think because we're in audio form here, well, let Scott do this. And then I'll bring some of Jan stuff into, uh, to, to, uh, clarify. Hey, John and Dave, it's Scott from Los Angeles again. Still haven't been caught, hopefully knocking on wood. Uh, in episode 600, you mentioned a problem with double mat and Verizon or Frontier or Fios. The other option you can do is without the Action Tech modem at all, if you're OMT, that's the box that they usually put in the garage or right outside where uh, Fios comes in, there's an Ethernet jack. And if you go straight from that into your Apple airport with DHCP turned on, you'll get your outside IP address. And that should eliminate the problem of double net, and it's a lot faster. But it all depends how they hook that up. Sometimes they hook it up with coax from the street. Sometimes they hook it up uh, with uh, uh, Ethernet from the street. All right, thanks again for the great show. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, as it turns out, they are doing, um, in, a, in some cases where you said they're using coax, sometimes that coax from the street is actually mocha from the street. So they're sending Ethernet over the coax. Um, and then sometimes they're using Mocha in the house to get things to the other devices. But a lot of times, in fact, either way, uh, it, it seems like you'll get an Ethernet jack in that ONT box, which is that box on the outside. And that Ethernet jack is ready for you to plug your router into. With one caveat, and, and I, I sort of distilled this down from Jan's awesome diagram. So you have... You, you will have two things plugged into your ONT box. You will have, in, as Scott just pointed out, something plugged into your Ethernet jack, 
and that's your router and then it can distribute stuff. And then you will have your action tech uh, TV box plugged into the coax side because you need that for your TV. However, Jan's done a lot of testing with this. And the problem is your action tech box. If you have a router plugged into your ethernet port, your action tech box will not be getting a local IP address on your network for you to be able to control it and do things locally. So you have to plug the ethernet port from the action tech box into one of the LAN ports on your router so that it gets a DHCP address. And it's sort of, it seems like you're creating a loop, but you're not, you're just completing the circle really so that all of these things can interact with each other. And yet your router still does what it wants to do as a router. Kind of crazy, but, um, but that way you don't have to deal with DHCP fighting and resetting and all of that good stuff. So that's uh, thank you guys so much for, for all that. And, and there were many, many others. Uh, Michael, in fact, uh, was, was kind of on the, on the list of, of helping explain all this to us. So hopefully we've communicated it to you as uh, succinctly as possible. But if you have any questions, let us know. Obviously there's quite a few experts here that we can uh, either ask or refer you to depending on their, uh, their personal privacy, uh, uh, limits. All right, John, did you pick another one, or, or are we are we jumping to Brent? Yeah, let's let's jump. jump okay, there. all right, fine. Uh, Brent asks a question that is a topic that we've uh, covered a few times, but it's a good one. He says, "Being that it's the year of the router, I have a router question. Currently, I have the latest Airport Extreme." Both the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz SSDs, SSIDs are named the same. I live in a three-bedroom townhome slash row house. It's not very large. And the airport extreme is in the office on the top floor. The house is two floors and a basement. Obviously, everything hooked up via Ethernet up there is getting fantastic speeds. Uh, when I'm on the floor with the router, everything is joining via, um, he says via N. I think he's saying via 5 gigahertz it's good not to confuse five gigahertz and 802.11n because you get 802.11n on both five and um, on 2.4. But maybe he's talking about AC. So things are joining uh, fast uh, on that floor. He says, now the issue, the TV, Apple TV and PlayStation floor are on the first floor, but not that really far away and not really that far away from the office. But when devices connect uh, to what I believe would be the 2.4 gigahertz radio, the speed test on my iPhone, Apple TV, and PlayStation 4 only get about 20 megabits down and, of course, 10 megabits up, which is his maximum. Uh, but the 20 megabits down is not the same as the 170 that he gets up in the office. I did a little experimenting and changed the 5 gigahertz radio's SSID to a different name. When all of those devices are connected to that, slightly better speeds, but the signal strength and network reliability is an issue. Uh, it worked fine one day. The next day, the Apple TV couldn't even see the 5 gigahertz network. I've tried a bit of experimenting with the 2.4 gigahertz channels. All seem to have gotten about the same speed test results, 20 down and 10 up. My questions, am I right in thinking that 2.4 gigahertz should be faster than 20 megabits down? Um, number two, outside of moving outside, uh, outside of moving the router power line, Mocha, is there any other airport extreme setting I'm missing? And number three, if I were to get a new router, something like either the Synology RT1900 or the Netgear R8500, uh, which would you choose or is there a better one? And would they potentially help coverage in the house? Okay. Well, you're asking the right people. It's a, these are good questions. So uh, question number one, 
Are you right in thinking that 2.4 should be faster than 20 megabits down? Well, I mean, maybe, maybe not. The only way to really test that would be to go up next to the router and connect via 2.4 and do a speed test there. That will start to give you your, you know, uh, your limits. But it, it almost doesn't matter, right? Because it depends, although it might. I mean, maybe there's something wrong with your router and the 2.4 is just malfunctioning, right? More than likely, though, you'll get fine speeds when you're up next to it, even on 2.4. Uh, and it just sounds like you have a lot of interference between the two devices. Using something like iStumbler or now, have you checked out Dabuki's new wireless mode, John? Um, yes. This and is awesome. I was going to talk... Yeah, I hadn't. Yeah, because I recently had uh, downloaded the license for it because you know I'm rebuilding my system here. But yeah, um, yeah they have. I've a been monitor. using it a lot. Yeah, it doesn't. I guess my question is, that I think at this point it doesn't show the actual payload, but it shows statistics about it. Yeah, what's cool is it puts your Mac into a really different mode. Like iStumbler's fine, and it tells you it's actually quite handy. You stay connected to your wireless, but it shows you all the other wireless networks it sees and gives you uh, what their security settings are and their channels and all of that stuff. Um, Dabuki takes Dabuki will show you that, but it takes it to the next level. It shows you every wireless device in your house, whether it's an access point or a uh, a client or, or sort of neither, right? It shows me all my Sonos devices and they're like only connected to each other. I just have them set up in mesh mode. Um, and it'll tell you of your client devices, what radio they're connected to, like what SSID they're attached to. So it's giving you a lot of cool information. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, so this this would have helped you and would still help you diagnose in, in like in Brent's scenario here, the what what radio, you know, when when they're both set to the same SSID, what radio is my Apple TV, you know, attaching to? You can just Dabuki right. would tell you instantly. Oh, it's the, that one. Great. One thing I do want to mention is so, so your question is, you know, what speech should I be getting? One thing that's important to look at is and you'll see this if you go to the airport menu and you hold out hold down alt. Um, Dabuki, I don't think gives this, it gives something similar, but the thing is, one of the things that happens is your radio and the base are going to negotiate a transmit rate, right? Right. And that's reported. If you hold down the alt key and look in the airport window, it shows you between your computer and the base station, what they decided is the maximum rate here. So I see 450 megabits per second. So in theory, the maximum throughput I'm going to get is about 45 megabytes. Uh, yeah, right. Divide right. by 10. I, I always divide by 10. Just Hey, are you possible. turned away from your mic? Are you like on one computer and turned to the other? Uh, I move the mic. Okay, so, yeah, we yeah. were getting so some weird sound like breath sounds. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, much better. Yeah, okay, cool. There we Thank go. You. Yeah, yeah no, I had, cool. I had it. I kind, of, I kind of figured while you were experimenting. Yeah, of course. Cool. Um, all right, so that's question one. Are we good with question one? Yeah, I just want to make make sure to mention that somebody has already decided. Yes, that's how right. Fast you can potentially go. Yeah, um, based on on whether you're going to see that. You know, and I've seen that. And the other figure, you know, if you search for this, you'll find it. But I think it's called MCS index, and that's another mm -hmm. value that says, "All right, you know, we talked about it, and here's what you're going to get." Yeah, here's how it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dabuki shows the actual throughput, which is interesting in and of itself to see if that, you know, how, how that correlates to what. They've, yeah, they've negotiated. Yeah, 
that is actually kind of interesting. Like I said, the the, the question I have is, can the does it show the payload? And I don't think it does at this point. Right. In no, the, I don't think it does. I think but it's showing it, yeah. statistics about the environment. About. You know, it's funny because you say, you know, it shows what's in your household. Actually, Dave, I'm looking here and oh, you see either neighbors. I either either I got some Sonos devices recently that I forgot I bought, <laughs> or one of my neighbors has Sonos because I see three Sonos devices show up in the vendor list, and it Whoa. and it doesn't it shows that they're it doesn't currently show they're associated with a base, so they may be like an idle mode or something. Well, no, they're probably like me in mesh mode because you can oh, either they have are. okay, okay, you can either have Sonos attached to a base in Wi-Fi mode, which is sort of the new um, alter new option okay. or the, the sort of the, the initial default way that Sonos did it forever was, and still does if you want is they just, they create their own mesh. You connect one of them to your router via ethernet and then the rest just sort of, you know, mm-hmm. talk to each other and come up with their own thing. But no, nice. it's just cool. Yeah. All right. So, Outside of moving the router and or power line or Mocha, are there any other airport extreme settings you're missing? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, it. If you do testing in close proximity to the router and you're still not getting the speeds you think you should be getting, and and all the stuff that we just talked about doesn't give you any reason for that, either interference or or whatever. Maybe a firmware reset of your airport extreme would solve it. I mean, we've seen that, you know, with, with odd issues, you're kind of running the gamut, but no, I don't think there's a magic setting for you here. Unfortunately. Um, number three, if you were to get a new router, oh, sorry, John, do you, do you agree with that? Well, I'm just going to laugh because the cycling power solved the problem that I had though. It was much less uh, of a problem. Sure. was, uh, Towards the end of the show last week, I said, wow, the power LED on my TP-Link Archer That's right. is off. I'm like, why is that? Well, you know how I solved it? Cycled power. Yeah. <laughs> some, it happens. Some, yeah. some, the software at some point must have, I, I think it's a mistake or a bug. All of a sudden it said, yeah, let's turn off the power LED sure. and see what he thinks about that. Yeah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. So uh, number three, if you were to get a new router, uh, what would you choose and would it potentially help. So I don't have a current gen airport extreme to test, so I can't compare, but I do have a similar setup to you where I've got um, a router on the top floor of my house and then two stories below it. So, you know, essentially in the basement, same, you know, setup as you Um, I've got, I've got a TV and things down there. Right. Um, I recently moved from using the, uh, Netgear R8500 is my router. That's the crazy tri-band, uh, you know, with router with, um, they've got the the amplifiers for the antennas are actually in the tips of the antennas so that they don't suffer from as much noise of the motherboard. I mean, they've gone nuts with this thing. However, um, I recently moved from using that to using the Synology router that you asked about. Because just to test it, I I have this this... This, um, I don't know, maybe it's a pipe dream, John, to be quite honest, uh, that I could use stock firmware in a router someday. And, uh, and I felt like the Synology firmware might be it. You know, I'm, I'm obsessed with DDWRT. I'm very addicted to all the flexibility. But the Synology firmware is pretty darn flexible and it's really robust because it comes from, you know, years and years of them building the same type of firmware for their, their uh, 
their NAS devices, the disk stations. So anyway, so I tried that and I am trying that. In fact, this show, our connection, John, right now is going over the Synology and it's, it's good. It, their QoS is kind of weird, to be honest. It needs a little help, but the rest of the interface is awesome. It even does local DNS and it does all the different VPN options I want because they just copied those from the disk station. So it's all very kind of mature and, and all of that. But, um, for that particular connection, the connection from the router on the top floor to devices on the, the bottom floor, you know, two floors down. So, so three to one in terms of floors, two sets of stairs. Uh, the Synology is negotiating slower speeds on the 802.11 AC side, on the, on the five gigahertz side. Not, not, not terribly lower, but consistently like a notch lower where I would get you know, a thousand, I'd get a connection that would read, you know, in the, in the stats is about a thousand megabits. You get about half of that. Um, it, this one is reading a max of about, you know, 750 or 800. Typically, sometimes it creeps up to the thousand, but it's never staying there. And so that's clearly, you know, the result of the, the, the differences between the Synology and the Netgear hardware. So, um, but that Netgear router is crazy. It's the strongest I've ever seen. So perhaps in your scenario, uh, it might be exactly what you're looking for, Brent, you know, something with just gobs and gobs of ability. And it's not just about power. It's, you know, about filtering and the way the radios are designed, the way the antennas are designed and, you know, all of that, but it definitely, you know, and I, and I've, and, and this is true elsewhere in the house too, but, but certainly from that three to one thing, third floor to first floor, uh, I, I, you know, it, there's a noticeable drop in speed. It doesn't matter for what I'm using it for that. I'm still getting hundreds of megabits of, of throughput. And you know what, a month ago I was using power line in that place and getting like, you know, 50, cause I don't know, I've got noisy wires in the basement. So, so it's, you know, it's fine. It doesn't impact me, but it's, it's there. So this might solve your problem, but it might not. It depends on what you've got in between you there, you know, I mean, if there's like, I don't know, concrete in the floors, I can't imagine there are, you know, I mean, there would be in your basement, but not in between, but maybe in between, I don't know. Or, you know, if you're trying to go through a refrigerator or something, because that just happens to be between, you know, the, the router. I mean, essentially, you, you know, you're probably like me, you've only got one floor between you and the, you know, between the router and, and where you want it to go. But I don't know what you have on that floor on ours. It's actually Hector. That six sits between. So Hector's getting a full, full radiation treatment of, uh, of 2.4 and five gigahertz. The router basically sits right above her. And then the TV in the basement is right below her. <laughs> so, so Hector manages traffic in a sense, in a sense, Hector. Yeah. Hector manages traffic. That's right. Um, yeah. Or network traffic. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. She's also slowly being cooked, but slowly another story. Well, you know, yeah, that's right. That's right. So she is, we do call her our, uh, our jungle chicken. So, you know, um, so, uh, so I don't know, but it's worth trying. And, you know, if you buy the R 8,500 from a place where you could return it, this would answer your question, but you know, for less than 200 bucks, you could buy, and I really want to try these. I'm I, I, hopefully within the next couple of weeks, I'll be able to, the new, uh, action tech has two mocha, uh, has, has, has a, you know, for like two, less than 200 bucks, I think it's about, it's about 170. You can get a pair of their new Mocha two bonded, uh, adapters 
And from what I hear, like those things are going to like begin to approach true gigabit ethernet speeds, like from some of the tests I've seen. So I, I want to put my hands on them and, and really test them out because I'm getting, I put a stupid little $6 point of entry filter on my whole house network and my mocha speeds went from um, about 200 megabits per second to like 275. I mean, it was just night and day wow. by putting this well, the purpose st- of that, that, that filter keeps the riffraff out, right? That filter keeps, yeah, it's, it, it's, it essentially filters what sh- all the mocha stuff from coming in or out of the house. So you put it, you know, I put it before my amplifier even, I just, I mean, it literally is the first thing that the cable line hits and uh, it doesn't negatively impact or positively impact the cable modem or anything else. It's all like all my signal strengths, all of that are exactly the same. It really only impacts Mocha. But for six bucks, I thought, well, it's, you know, whatever. It's a flyer. Fine. I'll try it, you know. And it was like, holy cow, this is awesome. So, and it does it. Yeah. It keeps the riffraff out and it also keeps my traffic. Theoretically, it keeps my traffic, my Mocha traffic from traveling up the stream. But if you listened last week, you know that I unintentionally tested that by trying to go mocha from the house to the office, which are on two different uh, streams from the pole. And, and I was not able to, so I'm, I'm not overly concerned that for a week I had people sniffing my mocha traffic. So mm. uh, I don't know. That's it. Yeah, You always, always got to think about that. You know, I remember one day when, when we lived at my original home, yeah. we found a neighbor. So back then we, we experimented with getting a household intercom. that sure. was using RF. And so, you know, we, we get it and you can choose from three different channels. And so we get the thing. And all of a sudden, like that evening, we're hearing voices that we don't recognize. And we're like, what is going on? And all of a sudden we went to one of them. We're like, hello. They're like, hello. They're like, yeah, we're at whatever, whatever road. Where are you? They're like, oh yeah, we're down this. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> you you want to change the channel or me? Yeah. Which one of us is going to do it? That's right. <laughs> Fun stuff. Good show, folks. Thanks for all the great questions. I want to call out uh, our premium listeners that asked uh, and and shared stuff during the show. Um, Scott, Michael, Jim. uh, I believe that was a second Michael, the the second Michael listed. Uh, And then Marty, Joseph, Sarah, PJ, and Brent. I think I've got everybody. So thank you so much to all of you premium listeners. Thanks to everyone. Uh, But if you are interested in becoming a premium listener visit us at macgeekgab.com you can sign up right there and uh, it really does help us out if you're interested in able and if you're not uh, as you saw we certainly uh, answer questions and share tips from everyone of course but I just wanted to call out a special thank you to all of our premium listeners and a special thank you to Hector for managing the traffic well while we uh, while we did today's show Oh, John, I don't know where to go from here. Uh, I want to thank uh, Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. How do people want to get in touch with us, John? Uh, heck, you know, we, we might as well talk about uh, Twitter. So there are a number of things. I just put this in our chat room here. If you want to get in touch with Hector D. Bird, Hector D. Bird is Hector, the letter D, B-Y-R-D on Twitter. I'm John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. The podcast is Mac Geekab. The publication is Mac Observer. Oh, and Pilot Pete, who's piloting he is. somewhere. Yes. But we are all on Twitter. One big happy family. That's um, true. That's true. I'm, I'm still amazed that Hector can tweet. That's just 
technology. Well, she has all that bandwidth at her disposal when she right. sits there. That's the thing. But yeah. she could learn to type. She could. Feedback at MacGeekGub.com is another way to get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you that way, unless you're a premium listener, in which case, premium at MacGeekGub.com, of course. Feedback at MacGeekGub.com. I think that's, that's right. what I heard. Feedback at MacGeekGub.com. I also do want to thank all the folks in our podcast marketplace. Gazelle at Gazelle.com. Of course, Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash Geek, where they always have... There are special deals for you as listeners. Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG. As we mentioned earlier, Otherworld Computing at MacSales.com. ProXVPN. Pro, sorry. ProXPNVPN. I'll say that right. At uh, ProXPN.com slash MacGeekGab where you can get a free VPN. No reason not to have it set up. The folks at Barebones Software at Barebones.com and of course Casper at Casper.com where MGG saves you 50 bucks. All in the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. John, we've made it through 601 shows now. And uh, I want to share a piece of advice to, uh, to everyone. Uh, two pieces of advice. You know what? I'm, we're going we're gonna to stretch this out a little. Two pieces, each worth three words, six words. Number one, do everything you can to beat the system. Number two, in the process of that and everything else, don't get caught. Made up.